Good to see everybody here today. We're going to look briefly at that text in 1 Samuel 8. Not going to stay very long there today for this uh, sermon time, though. If you want to turn there and read it with me, I'll, I'll allude to it uh, occasionally in our time together this morning. Uh, a little bit of a different kind of sermon today in that it's not going to be as much focused on a single text as it is on a topic that's found within the text, a principle that we're going to glean out of this text, and I'm looking forward to sharing some of these thoughts with you for the next few minutes as we worship together. It's good to see everybody here on a beautiful Sunday morning. Visitors, we welcome you again, and thank you for coming. We hope today's a blessing to you. More than anything, though, we, we, we hope that today, that this hour is uh, a tribute to our God and how awesome, incredible, and beautiful He is. That's our primary goal in being here today, is about Him. And so I pray that that is true for us. We've got six graduates, six high school graduates this year. Got others of you have graduated from college. We've got a lot of youth group, a lot of, a lot of kids in the youth group who are teenagers, a lot of um, little guys, young ladies who are in that middle school age group as well, and elementary school. And I've been thinking some as I was thinking about today, I was thinking about this particular lesson, I was just... Uh, thinking about the people in our church, people, our families in our congregation, I'm thankful, so very thankful for our families, I'm thankful for our parents, and for the fact that you guys are trying your best to raise your children to love the Lord, and it's a challenge these days, as you know, I, I guess it's always been a challenge, hasn't it, I, I suppose, I only know, we only know the world we live in, and we know that it's a big challenge today, there are a lot of pressures on us as parents and grandparents, to bring our children up to love the Lord more than anything in the world and to be willing to stand up against a world that does not, <clears throat> does not appreciate true commitment to Christianity. And uh, so we're going to reflect on some of that today. First um, Samuel 8, this text that Jay read for us a bit ago, is spoken. These, these words are, are spoken at a time when Israel was in a time of transition. And, and again, I'm just going to read, I'm going to look at this briefly. We're going to kind of tease out this principle that's in the text and think about more about, more about the world that we live in. But it's very important for us, us to understand the principle that God is getting at in the text or that is implied by the text. See, Israel was at a difficult point. They, things weren't going very well for them. They hadn't been successful very much. They had abandoned God for the most part. They, they weren't really living according to the way he had told them to live. They weren't keeping the covenant. They got to a point they said, we want a king. You know, we want a king. But that phrase that you may have read before in 1 Samuel 8, that phrase in, in, in verse 20, that we also may be like all the nations. That we also may be like all the nations. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, you're probably like this as well. You read about some of the things that they did. They worshipped cows. They would construct an idol out of wood or bronze or silver or gold. And as soon as they finished constructing it, they would get down on their knees and they would worship the thing that they had just built. Sometimes they even got to a point where they engaged in child sacrifice. Can you imagine? To the God of Molech, who was the God of the Moabites. Moabites were in that part of the world where they lived. Remember, God had warned them over and over again in Deuteronomy. He said, when you get to the land, you're going to be tempted to worship all the other gods. The God of Molech the god of Chemosh, the Ashtoreth, the Baal. Remember some of these names from the Old Testament? They were involved in all sorts of things in the Old Testament there. I mean, these, these gods, they worshipped them in sexual ways. They worshipped them with sacrifice of, 
of human beings. They worshiped them by worshiping cows, by worshiping all sorts of inanimate objects. It was a big deal. And if you're reading through the Old Testament, you know, you're on this schedule with us, and many people in our congregation are reading through the Bible together. You've noticed some of this stuff. Do you, do you remember the answer to this question? When Israel got into the land of Canaan, did they listen to what God had said, or did they become like the nations around them? Do you remember? You know the answer to that, right? Sometimes when I'm reading this, they did, by the way, they did. They, they became like the nations. Sometimes when I'm reading that, I'm thinking, man, how foolish were these people? You know, the Israelites, how, how unenlightened, how, how silly, how unspiritual, how godless, how wicked, how rebellious, whatever these Israelites were. If I had been there, you ever say that? If I had been there, I would not have bowed down and worshipped that golden calf. I know better than that. I know better than to worship a golden calf. I mean, come on. What, what, there's, no, there's nothing that's uh, deified about a golden calf. I would never have worshipped a cow. I wouldn't have bowed down before the stars and moon and called on them as my God. I wouldn't have worshipped the lightning and the storms and the oceans, right? Right? See, here's the thing. We have a tendency, and I'm guessing you're like me in this, we have a, a tendency to look on other cultures and look on other societies that are not ours, and we think, I would not be affected by that particular culture because I'm smarter than that, I'm more committed than that, I'm more spiritual than that. I would never do that. But what we don't do as much as we should is look at the culture where we are and ask reflectively and honestly, how is my own culture shaping my priorities, my ideology, my set of values? How is American culture, how is the Southeastern culture, how is the culture in which you and I have been born and raised, in which we live, how is this world, this American culture that's capitalistic, democratic, republican, progressive, liberal, whatever, adjective we want to use here, how is that particular culture shaping us? And I think about it particularly for younger people, but it's not just for young, it's not just for our graduates, it's not just for our families. This is, a, this is for all of us because I'm, I'm convinced the more and more I think and read scripture and think about culture and think about our engagement with culture, that we're being affected by this. And I see it happening out there. And it's easy for me to see out there, right, with other people, other churches, but I know what God would have us to do. I know God would have us to be introspective about this. Because He always has that. He always wants us to do that. It's so easy to see the shortcomings of other folks and other cultures. And it's so easy to overlook our own. Because it's ours. And that in which we've been immersed, we can't even see. It's just where we are. We can't even, we just look through it. We look through that prism without even acknowledging that it's there. So, the principle in 1 Samuel 8 is... We want to be like everybody else. And that tendency has not changed. It has not changed. We live in a world today that's trying to shape us and transform us and making us into its own image. And I want to share with you, if you're following along in the back of the bulletin, <coughs> I hope you'll be able to uh, maybe, maybe write some of these things. There are five things down. By the way, I, owe some, I need to give a, a footnote here. 
to a book by a man named David Young. He is a minister for Church of Christ in Middle Tennessee. The book is called A Grand Illusion, and um, I highly recommend it to you. It's a reflection on some of this that I'm going to be talking to you about today. It's a reflection on how the world is shaping the church and shaping Christianity and conforming us into its own image. And so some of these thoughts that I'm sharing with you today are based on that and other reading I've done, but particularly from that particular book. So I want to give a, a shout out to, to that particularly. These five things here, and I, I wonder how this will resonate with you if you'll acknowledge this, if you'll think about this and agree, disagree, whatever. I hope you'll think at least about the way these different principles are shaping who we are. There, there are these five key ideas in our culture. And the first one is this. The first one is, is the word on the screen there, tolerance. Tolerance. What I want us to do for the next few minutes is talk about these five principles just briefly, and then we're going to go back and respond to them. It's not that tolerance is a bad thing. In fact, all five of these I'm going to put up on the screen for you are not inherently bad things. Not necessarily bad things, but they are things that are happening. And the first idol or the first, this, this principle of our progressive culture today is that we talk a lot about tolerance. You heard, you heard about tolerance a lot lately, right? Am I the only one? We hear a lot about tolerance these days. And I, you and I both believe in tolerance. So tolerance is not a bad thing. But see, what's happening is that we are in, in our culture, we are being persuaded, we are being just immersed in this notion that tolerance is the supreme ideal and that it is almost like a God. It is almost like this, this supreme virtue where we are tolerant of anything. And tolerance is defined as acceptance. In fact, that's the second principle here, that we accept anything, that any lifestyle, any kind of ideology, any kind of practice, anything at all, we will tolerate it and we will accept it. And so if you are to achieve this high American ideal, then you're going to bow down at the feet of the idol of tolerance and the idol of acceptance, right? This is, I hope, I hope our young people particularly will listen to this because our world is changing. It's always changing. It will continue changing. The world in which you have been raised, that has always been a part of it. That you have been, I think to an extent, you have been misled by culture with a, with a bad definition of what tolerance actually is. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it's, it's this idea that if you are to be a loving person, then you're going to tolerate anything at all. And we've got to think about what that means in a Christian context. How do we think about tolerance? How do we think about acceptance? Here's the third thing. It's the word passivity. <coughs> it's this idea that we are to be passive on any kind of teaching, any kind of ideology, any kind of philosophy. This applies to Christian teaching. It also applies to teachings just in society as a whole. And so it could be some sort of teaching. It doesn't matter what people believe. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what theology they hold. It doesn't matter what, what they believe about humanity. It doesn't matter what they believe about Jesus. Uh, beliefs don't matter. We tolerate anything. We accept anything. And we are passive on all things doctrinal. So it doesn't really matter. All these things are just um, everybody's different opinion. We all believe different things, hold different ideas, and that's fine. It doesn't matter as long as you're nice and good and tolerant. Then that is that's the chief idea. Here's the fourth one. We've redefined love as sentimentalism. Love is this 
notion, according to this kind of 21st way of, of viewing it, love is just an emotion. It's, it's, about, it's about sentimental feelings. Um, love is, is not something that acts in, in, in ways that might be offensive to others, but it's always just a sentimental kind of warm and fuzzy feeling, this, this love, this notion of love. It's portrayed in our movies and sitcoms and in our magazines and books. Love is sentimentalism. The last one is, <coughs> if we believe that no one is right and no one is wrong, that there's no truth with a capital T, there's no absolute moral value or ethic. If we believe that there's nothing absolute, nothing divine, nothing supernatural, no God who oversees the world and defines good and evil, if we don't believe that, then we are left with competing values and none of which ought to win out over the others. So if that is true, then we don't know that there's a God and, and we ought not have this presumptuous attitude that we need to convert anybody to our way of thinking, therefore we don't evangelize. Because evangelism, by its very nature, is saying that I believe that I've got something that you need, I believe I believe something that you need to believe, I believe you need to listen to what I'm saying. That's what evangelism is. Evangelism is, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and I want to share that faith with you. That's what evangelism is, right? But we're not going to do that. We're not going to do evangelism because that's a negative thing in a world that says all, all truth claims are equally valid, right? Whether it's Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or New Ageism or secularism or atheism or agnosticism, all of these truth claims are equally valid. And so for one to evangelize another is presumptuous, right? So we're going to avoid evangelism. So we've been, our kids have been raised in an environment with these five principles, tolerance of anything, acceptance of all lifestyles, a kind of passivity when it comes to any kind of convictions, redefining love as sentimentalism, and therefore we avoid any kind of conversation that might imply that I'm trying to persuade you to my way of thinking, because that would be condescending. Is this connecting at all? You understand? understand at least my explanation of whether you agree with this kind of evaluation of culture or not, that you see that this is, this is happening. What I'm wanting us to do is to think about, okay, it was happening to Israel. How might it be happening to us? And what's happening in our, in our own culture is these, these tenets and those associated with them are permeating Christian groups, churches today, including ours, including, including churches of Christ, as we we are, are, are being tempted to, to fall into this kind of, this kind of I, I try to avoid words like progressive because that means something different depending on the context, but to, a, uh, to this kind of thinking. I mentioned in the discussion class, I think a week and a half ago downstairs, and then I think I mentioned this to the class I'm teaching on Sunday morning last week about an interview, and I'm going to mention it to the church as a whole now, um, this interview that I read with the president of a Christian seminary in the northeast part of the country, and she was interviewed by a writer for the New York Times. And in that interview with her, he's interested in Christianity, wouldn't call himself a Christian, but he's interested in the claims of Christianity. Got a couple of hang-ups, and I'll mention those in a second. But he interviews her, and, and he talks to her, this is around Easter, because 
A lot of times, New York Times, you know, Time Magazine, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, whatever, they, they, they run some sort of feature about Christianity around Easter. So this is a couple weeks back. <coughs> In the interview, he said, what do you think? He's the president of a Christian seminary. He said, what do, you, what do you think about the resurrection? I'm paraphrasing here, but go back and check this. What do you think about the resurrection? And she said, well, you know, the resurrection doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus came out of the, the grave. Doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean that, that his body came out of the grave, but rather resurrection was a symbol of new hope, of, uh, of the resurrection of, 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 of new belief, of, of the, the community still exists, of the philosophy, the you know, belief about uh, a man named Jesus. You know? Resurrection doesn't mean that actually believe that there was a body that came out of the tomb. You know? And, and, and they talked about other things, like they talked about the virgin birth. What do you think about the, what, what the New Testament says about the virgin birth of Jesus? And, and her response to that was, well, we don't actually believe that Mary was a virgin when Jesus was born. Uh, that was a part of a patriarchal culture, and it was oppressive to women. And this notion of the um, untouched feminine body as being above others is, is a product of the patriarchal first century culture. And so we don't believe the virgin birth either. And, and again, the interview went on, and it was, it was talking about other things like the Bible. You know, what do you believe about the Bible? The, do we, can he trust the Bible? Well, the, the Bible isn't really trustworthy. It's a product of human beings who made mistakes, you know, that sort of thing. At the end of the interview, the, the, the guy writing the article, he, he ended up saying, well, I've, you know, I've, I've wondered... If, if I could be called, you know, what, what would I be called? Because I'm attracted to certain things about Christianity, particularly Christianity's notions of taking care of the poor and the vulnerable and the ostracized and being good and, you know, social justice things. And, and she said, she said, well, but he said, but I have a problem with the resurrection and the virgin birth. And she said, well, I don't believe in the resurrection and I don't believe in the virgin birth and I'm a Christian minister so why don't you just call yourself a Christian minister as well? That's kind of the gist of it. Go back and look it up. <clears throat> see, the, see the issue with this? This is where our culture, this is where our culture is going. Our culture is perfectly fine. To our graduates, it is perfectly happy with you calling yourself a Christian. Doesn't, doesn't bother the world at all. Call yourself a Christian. Just don't believe in the absolute nature of the truth claims of Christianity. Just don't accept those things that, that separate our own convictions from those of the world. Hey, as long as you believe that Christianity is about doing good and being nice and taking care of the vulnerable and, and, um, and taking care of the poor and ministering to those who are ostracized and marginalized, that's great. But take the supernatural stuff out of it because that's, that's old-fashioned. That's old, that's old stuff. And see, what I see happening is, and, you, and, you, and you're going you're to witness this, we're going to witness this, especially, I, I think, in the next 20 years, particularly on, on a couple of issues, and one of them is sexuality. One of them is sexuality. We live in a world where that has become, is becoming, will become even more of a litmus test for are you going to be committed to one particular philosophy on it, a worldly philosopher that says that sexuality is determined solely by 
the individual, and that no one has the right even to speculate that that choice may in some way be wrong, or to a commitment to what has been a part of the Judeo-Christian ethic for thousands of years consistently, and that is that the act of sex is reserved for a man and a woman who are married to each other. You see, in the next 20 years, that's going to define, that's going to define if one is, 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 is willing to stand up for what Scripture teaches. We'll come back to kindness and, and love in, in a minute. I'm not suggesting that standing up is, with, a, with a mean spirit in any way represents Christ. But I am suggesting to you that that is going to be a litmus test, I believe, for churches to decide if they're going to go along with a culture that says we tolerate and accept anything or we're willing to be countercultural. And that, that one, another one is the sanctity of life. <clears throat> and in so many of these environments I'm talking to you about now, it is interesting that there's a lot of talk. In fact, I was reading last night, early this morning, from one source about um, just words about part of being a Christian is, is protecting the vulnerable by being concerned about people who have been marginalized because of race or gender or whatever. And I agree with that. I think we all would, right? But curiously not mentioned there was the most vulnerable of us all. And that is the unborn. Or even in our changing times, the newly born. So it's just it's, it's interesting how our, our world, this, this notion is conforming us and shaping us, and we look at Israel and we think, I'd never do that. But yet so many, so many people who once held true to the 2,000-year-old convictions of Christianity are now seeming to conform and to say, well, it's not that big of a deal. You know, I read, I think this is in that, it is in that book that I re referenced earlier by David Young. <clears throat> he says, if everybody around you is saying that a cow is a god, the social pressure on you to deify cows will be tremendous. I can't imagine that, right? I think I'd be able to resist that. That cow's not a god. <clears throat> but he says that that pressure would be tremendous. In the same way, if everybody around you is saying that a man may be a woman, the social pressure will be enormous for you to say that men are women. It's no wonder that throughout the period of the Israelite judges and kings, idolatry and syncretism were defining problems as Jews erected altars on every tall hill and under every green tree, end quote. What he's, what he's saying there is that principle, that philosophy that, that permeated Israel and that caused Israel to conform is the same principle that's at work today. And we, to our, to our young people, whether you go to a state school or you go to a Christian school or you go straight into the workforce, you're, you're, you're going to be persuaded. Our schools have always leaned to the left, right? And, and, toward, and toward denying certain principles about, about God. That is state schools and that is Christian schools. They've all leaned a little bit to the left of the constituencies that they represent. And so we're immersed in this. And I wanted to, I wanted to present this to you today just to get you to, to listen and to question what you're being taught. Question your, 
values, question your, uh, question your, um, your priorities, it ought to take a lot for us to go against things that have been a part of the Christian church for 2,000 years. Convictions and values and priorities. Those five things that I talked about, I want to, just in a closing time here, I want to respond just briefly to those. Do you and I believe in tolerance? You don't have to answer that out loud. Do you, do you believe in tolerance? Absolutely. We believe wholeheartedly in tolerance. But we reframe that tolerance so we can pursue both grace and truth. You see, that's the problem in, in our world's way of viewing tolerance. It's, it's abandoning any kind of truth claim, and it is emphasizing only tolerance. Tolerance to the exclusion of truth. We can pursue tolerance. Christians ought to be the kindest, the warmest, the most loving, the most compassionate people in the world. But that does not mean that we abandon what we believe. So we can hold the truth, but we can do it with grace. And I think that's one of the issues, one of the problems that, that's been in our past is that sometimes, even in churches of Christ, maybe especially in churches of Christ, we have held to the truth, but we've done so with a bit of a mean spirit at times. And we have done so maybe a little bit judge in, in, a, in a kind of a judgmental way at times, haven't we? But what happens is sometimes people grow up in that kind of, that kind of environment, sometimes it's been oppressive, sometimes they kick back against that and the pendulum starts swinging and it never stops. And so in our churches, we need to foster an emphasis on tolerance as expressed in holding to the truth, but holding to the truth with grace so that the kids who grow up in this kind of environment don't feel oppressed, but they feel the freedom that's in Christ, the freedom to follow the truth of Jesus Christ. That's what true tolerance is. Not this pseudo-tolerance that means I say I'm good and find, well, I'm fine with everything, no matter what. That I'm not going to speak against or speak out or say anything that might be controversial about anything at all. So tolerance is reframed. We pursue both grace and truth. Number two, we accept all sinful struggles. What do, what do we believe about acceptance? <coughs> I hope nobody would ever think that members of this church are intolerant. As long as we understand what it means to be intolerant. We accept all sinful struggles because we recognize there's not a person sitting in a pew this morning who is without struggle. We are no better than anyone else. And if we ever communicate the idea that we're better than the person who's struggling with the same sex attraction, that somehow our sin is less than that, then we are wrong. And we are, in so doing, judging our own hearts. If we put ourselves up on a pedestal and say that our particular sin struggles are not as bad as this particular person's sin struggles, right? So we accept all sinful struggles, but we help one another to pursue holy lifestyles. So we accept all struggles, recognizing that we all struggle, but nonetheless, we want to encourage one another to pursue holiness. See, our world's idea of acceptance is, okay, you've, you've got, you're, you're dealing with this. There's nothing wrong with that. Just pursue, be you, you know, find you. Is this, have you heard this motto lately, in the last 10, 15 years especially? 
Young, to our graduates, you, you'll probably hear this, probably have heard this many times. You need to find yourself. You need to be yourself. You need to do what makes you happy. It's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about you, what you want, who you want to be. Don't let anybody else tell you what you ought to be. You be you. You just be you. And we've kind of confirmed that through the lives of many young people now in the last generation. You know, it's you come in 10th place, you get a trophy. Only 10 teams, you came in 10th, you get a trophy. Because everybody's a winner, right? It's all we, we, with the, our idea about self-esteem is they're so fragile that we need to protect them and we need to affirm them and, and, all, and all of that. And, and we're all for affirmation, right? But our world has become about the individual. You be you, you do you, you become who you are, right? And what we need to recognize is that Christianity is not about, it's not about our finding ourselves. It's about our finding Christ and allowing Christ to conform us into who he's called us to be. So there's a difference there. Number, number three, about being judgmental or about passivity. We make judgments, good judgments, but we're not judgmental. See, Matthew 7, when that text says, um, judge not that you be not judged, with what judgment you, you shall be judged, you know, that text has been, it's been abused over the years because the Lord is not telling us not to make judgments. He's telling us not to be judgmental. There's a difference between being judgmental and making judgments. We can and must make judgments about what Scripture teaches about certain things being right and certain things being wrong. At the same time, <coughs> we dare not be judgmental or hypercritical or put ourselves up on a, some sort of pedestal from which we make these pronouncements as if we're better than everybody else. That's judgmentalism. That's, hypoc that's, that's hypocrisy. So we can pursue truth with grace. We can make good judgments without being judgmental. Number four, we love will be defined not by sentimentalism, but by sacrificial action that follows the teachings of Jesus. What is love? It's not sentimental feelings. It's not, it's not an emotion. Love is acting at great sacrifice of oneself in the best interest of the people around you. That's what the cross is. We follow that model of love. That's more than sentimentalism. It's more than telling people they're right when you believe they're wrong. It's more than being silent because you don't want to offend someone. It's acting in someone's best interest at great sacrifice to yourself, which is the model of Jesus. It's what Christians must do. It's what we must do. The last one is, as far as evangelism is concerned, we want to invite everyone into the beauty of a relationship with Jesus. Now, the world may think that's offensive sometimes. And maybe it will be to some folks. But if I understand why we're here this morning, we're here because we believe that the tomb was empty, right? We believe Jesus died on the cross. We believe the tomb was empty. We believe that Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's what we believe. That's what we confess. That's why we worship this morning. That's why we're here. And if we believe that, if we really believe that, we want to tell folks about it. Some people might be offended by that message. We tell it with love, we tell it with grace, we tell it with compassion, but we don't stop telling it because it might be offensive to the sensitivities of the world we live in. 
we want to invite everyone into the beauty of Jesus. I want to close this morning by looking just, basically just reading Matthew 7, just three verses near the end of the most famous sermon ever preached. Jesus said, everyone then, verse 24, who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. One of the most photographed buildings in the world is the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Some of you have been there. Completed in the 13th century, the marble building has nearly 300 steps to the top, surrounded by gorgeous Corinthian columns, plays seven bells. The facade is lovely. The building today is a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But even as it was being built 800 years ago, it began to tilt. Today, the alignment at the top of the, of the Tower of Pisa is more than 12 feet off, and the building is sinking. You're probably aware that several efforts over the years have been made to rectify the tower. Some have helped, and others have actually made it worse. Do you know what the problem with the Leaning Tower of Pisa is? The problem is the foundation. The tower, 800 years ago, was built on sandy ground rather than solid rock. To our young people, to, to all of us, what you've been taught is to build your foundation on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. On the truth of what he taught, the fact that he died, and the fact that the tomb was empty on that Sunday morning. What you're being persuaded by the world is to take that foundation and replace it with a foundation of sand. And what we've seen, history can tell us this over and over again, with societies that abandon God, that abandon their conviction that He is and that He is the judge of the living and the dead, societies that abandon that conviction eventually found them, find themselves without a sturdy foundation at all. And so it is disturbing to look out in the world today and see so many people who are abandoning the solid foundation of the Word of God that teaches us about Jesus and are embracing these shifting sands that will not sustain us. So the challenge to us all is to stand strong, to stay sturdy, and to be convicted with all of our hearts and to live consistently with those convictions about Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, I've been talking, I know, mostly to those of us in this church, but we invite you, as I said near the end of this, we believe what we believe. We believe it to be true. We believe it with all of our hearts. And we invite you into that story because we believe it's true. If we believed it was true and didn't say anything to you about it, then what would that say about us, you know? So we invite you to accept the claims of Jesus that he is the Son of God. We believe that is the foundation. We believe it's the foundation of rock. And we believe you can stand on that, that it'll support you. It'll hold you up when times get hard. It'll support you when times are good. That it's worth confessing and worth believing and worth living your life on. 
in fact, staking your life on. We believe that. We invite you today to accept the claims of Jesus, to put him on publicly in baptism, accepting him as your Lord and as your Savior. He will not, he will not lead you astray. And so we invite you today to make that confession and be baptized. Or maybe for many of you, you've done that some time ago, but perhaps you're here today as one who needs to come back and once again claim Jesus as your Lord and Savior. We invite you to come as well. If you need to respond, I hope you'll do that. Let's stand and let's sing this song together.